Alright, um, good morning um, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio with Jacob and Lalita. Good morning listeners. Alright, so, um, can you hear? Is all fine there? Yeah, all good? Alright, so I guess um, what um, in terms of what's the latest in um, terms of news, um, well, a lot of people are still talking about Donald Trump. Um, there's been kind of like Lots of developments probably since the last time, um, the last time that we've been, um, since the last time we were there, we had quite an intensive discussion about Donald Trump, you know, what the election means. Um, but since then, there's actually been a number of developments. Um, I guess the first sort of thing is there's been um, a lot of, um, there's been a series of protests um, in the United States in response to um, Donald Trump being elected. Um, but there's also been a number of, um, there's also starting to be some organising in response to Trump in the, um, here in Australia. Um, there's actually going to be a counter rally against, um, Trump supporters who, um, Trump supporters are going to be organising, uh, their own sort of rally in support of Donald Trump, um, this Sunday at the Federation Square. I think the time at this point is, um, undetermined, um, although we're, the counter, um, the, um, campaign against fascism and racism are planning to do, do, um, an action, um, do, to do a counter rally around 2, 1.30. Um, so stay tuned probably for more details as we get in, onto that, into the activist calendar. So. I think the most important thing about, um, well, we, we can talk about Trump a little bit more, uh, later on because I've got the, I've got the um, list of his plans. Um, so what we should look at is, I guess, what matters to Australia. And you mentioned the deal with, about the refugees, um, Jacob. Uh, maybe we should go into some details of that um, deal that's been made. And I am very dubious about the conditions uh, that are going to be provided for the refugees who are going to go to the U.S. under this deal. Uh, I'm just wondering if you have, um, in, in, in the Green Left Weekly, more details about that. Um, basically, the deal is, um, it was announced on November the 13th. Um, the, um, the idea of it is um, that it will give um, refugees who are currently held in Australia's detention system the chance to, to apply to be resettled in the United States. Um, it is a, it is going to be a one-off deal and will not apply to future asylum seekers who come to Australia seeking safety and protection. Um, of course, um, there's still a lot of details that are unknown about um, this um, refugee settlement deal. Um, the things that we don't know is, for example, the time frame. Um, is in an article that Zebedee Parks from Green Left Weekly has written here about um, the deal. Um, Turnbull has refused to answer questions on the number of people who will be resettled, saying it will be the United States, um, the US government's decision. Um, but some um, refugees in Manus Island detention have already been told by immigration officials that not everyone will be resettled in the US. Um, under the deal, refugees will have to be uh, to apply to be settled in in the U.S. They will have to go through U.S. screening and security checks in the same way as refugees from Syria or anyone else. Um, the refugees will be included in the current U.S. UN HCR refugee intake, and selection will be administrated by the UN 
HCR, who have, for the record, not been involved in drawing up the deal. Um, of course, people in the offshore detention centres have been given a small slip of paper with the web address for the US State um, Department's General Refugee Application page. Um, it is the only information they have been given so far about the process. Um, I guess immigration experts in the United States um, say it will take months to process the refugee claims under current process. By that time, Donald Trump um, will be president um, because right now this deal was sort of made in the context of Obama being the current um, right. standing president. So, you know, Donald Trump goes on about this a lot of this rhetoric about you know how we shouldn't take in refugees because they, you know they could. He's be going to deport three million people. So, I am I will be surprised if he actually yeah. allows this deal to go ahead. And in addition to that, you know, in in the U.S. Refugees aren't treated very well. They don't have a um, Medicare system. Obamacare only covers partial needs, health needs of the people there. And what about housing? What about jobs? You know, and the locals actually voted for Trump because of the unemployment levels in a lot of um, the country areas in, in the U.S. So mm. this deal looks dodgy. Yeah. To say the least, and I guess more details will come out I later. I think um, another guess, another thing. Um, Zeb writes that the, the kind of the deal represents almost like a false hope for people in detention That's because right. there's so many kind of questions. And of course, it's also I think my opinion, and this is um, almost um, the similar to the perspective that Zeb is putting forward, is that it's actually you know it's almost a way of um, Australia kind of like absolving itself of response of its responsibility it to um, to the UN, um, especially the UN Refugee Convention. I mean, it actually, in theory, this deal, the amount of I'm just thinking about the kind of complex bureaucracy of this deal. Mm-hmm. It actually probably would be simpler just to just to um, Bring, bring the refugee, here. Here, bring them here, <laughs> process their claims um, in the community, yeah. as they right, and give them um, people permanent re- um, residence. My so biggest concern, sorry to interrupt, um, Jacob, the, my biggest concern is the mental health issues suffered by so many of these refugees for having been there for such a long time. The United States health system is so expensive, and unless you've got a um, uh, insurance they turn you out. Mm. They don't look at you. And the plight of the refugees is looking very dicey to me. And the, the, the deal sounds okay to, to most people. And I guess some races will say, oh, thank God they get rid of them. And also some the, the people who are concerned about money will say, oh, well, there's less money mm. spent on refugees. But the fact remains that these, these are human beings who have been ill-treated by Australia, now being transferred lock, stock and barrel to the U.S., which is, has got inferior health systems. Yeah. You know, so we are looking at a disastrous deal, to say the least, from what I'm seeing at the moment, and we don't have any details. And, yeah. and I guess there's a reason as to why he hasn't given details. Well, actually, um, it, this seems like quite a long kind of thing to go on, but there's actually still a lot of details to go through. Um, one um, kind of detail, and this is in context with kind of like um, many listeners have probably know that um, that Turnbull government is proposing um, a, a ban on refugees um, from from coming settling to Australia ever ever basically there would not by boats any refugees if you come by plane you're okay any refugees <laughs> who come by boats um, the government has said that they will not be settled in the country um, and. 
Turnbull is kind of playing this, um, the Turnbull government is kind of playing this political game. Basically, it's saying this US resettlement deal will not pass unless um, the refugee visa ban bill also pa- passes, um, which um, for which has um, been um, voted against by the Greens, some cross branches, um, independent senators, and um, the Labor Party. So. It's, it's all it's looks a bit messy at the moment. Because um, another thing to think about historically is New Zealand actually made off made uh, offered this same deal to the Australian government mm. um, years ago, That's right. except they refused. So why Australia is it? Refused, yes. Yeah, why is it that they're starting um, that this deal with the United States is actually more? Yeah, it's such especially a total w- lack of honesty in this whole yeah. area. You know, I mean, these these people have been much better off health wise, mental health wise, if they've been sent to New Zealand. Yeah. So where's your problem here? And New Zealand's much closer than the United States and Uh, also much cheaper to fly to and travel to. Yeah, I think I'm sure we've heard this many, many times. And they don't care. The the Labour Party don't care about what people think. And this is, is, uh, you know, a dangerous path they are following. Um, I guess, you know, the Hanson factor is only partially there. Uh, 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 when you compare to the Trump factor. So I think we should move on to the next topic. And I was thinking, um, should we do Trump and his plans after um, 7.30? Um, we do other, other news now? Um, well, I guess another, um, another sort of... Well, most of the news um, articles in actually the latest Green Left Weekly are really... They, we might as well probably focus we can go talk about Donald Trump and get, get it over and then move on to some other news stories. Yeah. Just for our listeners' information, the time is 7.11. And after having a very hot day yesterday, I think, I think there's going to be a hot day today as well. Have a look at the weather on the computer. Um, the weather is not going to be as um, warm as yesterday. It's going to be 20 degrees. Yeah, so if you're going, heading off to work. So there's your weather report briefly for you. And we have an interview lined up for later. Um, is with the uh, Asylum Resource Centre representative or spokesperson, spokesperson uh, Wendy Farmer. No, 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 no. I think no, you're thinking. I, I think you completely confused the interview. Um, Wendy Farmer is someone um, who is involved in um, in basically um, the Lashore campaign around Lashore Rally ah, for just transitions sorry, sorry. in the community. Apologies, listeners. Yes. Okay. Fine. So that's that's the the plan. Um, and, to, and then we've got um, the 40-day, 40-day, well, yes, a 40-day um, celebration of 40 years of 3CR having been on air and um, radical radio, as we say, and we want to keep it going for listeners who are, you know, enjoy uh, our programs. Uh, don't forget, our fundraising is still going on. We didn't reach our target today, uh, this year. So I'll be uh, here to encourage people to support the station. Um, as you know, anything over $2 is tax deductible. And this is Alita Chalaya and Jacob um, Andrew at the, at the helm to take you through to 8.30. Um, we were talking about Trump before, and I thought we, because it's such a phenomenal factor, um, this victory of Trump in the U.S. affects every country in the world literally because of as we call it, the U.S., the bastion of capitalism. And one very, very famous um, commentator is uh, Noam Chomsky. And I thought I'll give a uh, brief rundown about what his thoughts are on uh, Trump winning the elections or surprisingly winning the elections. He he says that um, the support he received from white voters 
working class and low middle class people, particularly in their 50,000 to 90,000 income bracket, rural and suburban uh, people, so primarily those without college education. These groups share the anger throughout the West at the centrist establishment, revealed as well as un- an unanticipated Brexit vote and the collapse of the centrist parties in continental Europe. Many of them are very angry, disaffected. Uh, they are victims of neoliberal policies of the past generation and the policies described in congressional testimony by Federal Chair Alan Greenspan, or St. Alan as is his sarcastically called, I guess. He called for um, reverentially by the economics, uh, uh, sorry, start again. He is called St. Um, Alan, um, as I said, and other admirers, until the miraculous economy he was supervising crashed in the 207-208, threatening to bring the whole world economy down with it. As Greenspan explained during his glorious days, his success in economic management was based substantially on growing worker insecurity. Mark that. Growing worker insecurity, and we see that here as well. Um, instability, short-term contracts, outsourcing, and, and so on and so on. The EBA is, is a big factor, of course. Intimidated working people around the world would not ask for higher wages, benefits, and security, but would be satisfied with the stagna- stagnating wages and reduced benefit that signal a healthy economy by neoliberal standards. Working people who have been the subjects of these experiments in economic theory are not particularly happy about the outcome. They are not, for example, overjoyed the fact that in 2007, uh, at the peak of the neoliberal miracle, real wages for non-supervisory workers were lower than they had been years earlier, or that real wages for male workers are about na- at 1960 levels, while s- spectacular gains have gone in the pockets of very few at the top, disproportionately a fraction of the 1%. Not the result of market forces, achievement or merit, but rather of definite policy decisions. And I think this has, this has to be emphasized. These are the policy decisions and matters reviewed carefully by economist Dean Baker. And he's written a book, of course. But this this... Policy decisions, I think we have to watch because here Malcolm Turnbull and his cronies are making the very same policy decisions, sometimes in conjunction and in cooperation with the Labour Party, otherwise in, 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 in cahoots with the so-called crossbenchers or independents or whatever they want to call themselves. So we need to watch out for the same phenomena happening here. It's already begun and how far we go at least uh, Pauline Hanson is not a prime minister, but working people who have been subjects, who have been the subjects of these economic experiments are not too impressed. And that's as simple as that. And, and furthermore, what we have is the phenomenon that Trump now, being the president of the U.S., is wielding enormous power across the world. There's so many deals, so many countries they are, the, the American business is in, and he is going to be dealing with every one of these. And I've got a list of a 100-day plan by Trump, and I'm sure listeners will be interested to hear that. And I'll read that out. Just It's about, I think, 10 or so um, short ones. Okay, first, he's proposing a constitutional amendment to impose term limits on all members of Congress. Um, That could be a good thing. 
Second, a hiring fees on all federal employees to reduce federal workforce through attrition, example, military, public safety, and public health. A requirement that for every new federal regulation, two existing regulations must be eliminated. So he's changing the laws drastically. A five-year ban on White House and congressional officials becoming lobbyists after they leave government service. I guess this is a popular um, move he's making to impress people that he's now attacking the politicians. But it, despite the fact that he's probably put his whole... Family into it. No, no. Well, his whole cabinet, um, the way he's selecting, he's basically selecting the worst of the establishment. Well, they're, so already, they're already fighting each other, as, as you can expect. A lifetime ban on White House officials lobbying on behalf of foreign governments. Interesting one. Uh, a complete ban on foreign lobbyists raising money for American elections. This is this is xenophobia in a, at a different level. You know, um, it, it, it's, it's good for third world countries or developing nations where foreign. This should be imposed uh, by every developing nation, so the the rich countries don't influence the developing nations' policies. Okay, on the same day, I'll begin taking the following seven actions to protect American workers. Now, this is down to the tin tax. I'll announce my intention to renegotiate NAFTA, the North Atlantic Free Trade Agreement, or withdraw from the deal under Article 2205 according to their constitution. Um, second, I'll announce or our withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That's a good thing because both these deals favor the rich. And it's interesting that he's doing that. I'd like to know what he's going to replace it well, with. Well, I, I would be sceptical on whether he will follow through on those plans simply because um, the dynamic of Donald Trump is Donald Trump um, has used sort of this sort of populist rhetoric to, you know, appeal to, you know, people. Basically, if you watch his campaign ads, they're all about how he is for the common man. I mean, he had a slogan. Just man, not woman, right? Yeah, well, yes, <laughs> of course. But he had a slogan called "People Before Government" um, as one of his campaign slogans, like which doesn't. I I personally prefer "People for Profit," but it's sort of like it's oxymoron because people expect things from the government; they pay taxes so the government can use it yep. wisely for the benefit of the people. Um, but but the main thing is um, Donald Trump's history as a businessman or as an entrepreneur, capitalist, is he's basically um, taken advantage of free trade deals. To begin with, of like course. he's used um, sheep third world labour from um, right. produce okay. profits for the company. But yeah, that's the reason <laughs> Good why. Point. Good point. Let's keep going. Um, he will direct the Secretary of, of the Treasury to label China a currency manipulator. That's very not not very diplomatic, but anyway, um, he's got uh, another thing going with China, so we'll see how that develops. Fourth. I will direct the Secretary of Commerce and U.S. Trade Representatives to identify all foreign trade abuses and unfairly that unfairly impact American workers and direct them to use every tool under the American international law to end these abuses immediately. Again, this is pandering to the workers, which really is pandering to the capitalists who are dealing with um, international trade. That's what this is all about. And it say it, it impinges on workers. It's, it's a capitalist who move business from from a rich country to to a developing country so they can make more profit. So how does that you know? And I'm sure he does it too. Fifth, I will lift the restrictions on the productions of 50 trillion dollars worth of job-producing American energy reserves, including shale, <laughs> oil, natural ga- gas, 
and clean oil, uh, yeah. clean coal. <laughs> that sounds already very disastrous. Um, I for know, the environment. I know. <laughs> okay, then lift the Obama-Clinton roadblocks and allow vital energy infrastructure projects like the Keystone Pipeline to move forward. So here we go. This is a battle fought by the people of America to stop it because of the dangerous um, uh, cl- clearing of, of land, the poisoning of, of the seas and waters and so on. That's why they stopped that. And, and, and this Dakota pipeline also, that battle is still brewing. I guess he'll stop that too uh, if, if this is the example he's going to follow. Seventh, cancel billions in payments to the UN, climate change programs and used... Oh, I shouldn't laugh. It's so serious. Use the money to fix America's water and environmental infrastructure. This is a total disaster. And Chomsky talks in length about this disastrous plan of his. Um, people who are interested, you should um, read about that. And also, Green Left Weekly, of course, um, has written quite a bit on, on the Trump factor and has got several articles on and people who are interested should refer to it. It's available on the Internet, yep. and we're encouraging as many people as possible to subscribe to Green Left Weekly because we do cover all this in much more detail. So it's a very interesting issue this time, um, as always. But this is particularly important because of this whole new phenomenon we are facing, and our analysis is going a long way in contributing to the discussion. Now, next, additionally, on the first day, Trump will take the following five actions to restore security and the constitutional rule of law. First, cancel every unconstitutional, hard word to say, executive action, memorandum and order issued by President Obama. So here we go. There's a whole list of things, good or bad, they're all going. Second, begin the process of selecting a replacement for Justice Scalia from one of the 20 judges. I think he's already done that. He's appointed one of the most right-wing judges um, Mm -hmm. he could find. And he's appointed him to defend the Constitution of the United States, Jacob. So there we go. Third, cancel all federal fundraising to sanctuary cities. That might be a more United States kind of specific. Yeah. yeah. And uh, begin removing the more than 2 million criminal illegal immigrants from the country. I thought 3 million. From the country and cancel visas to foreign countries then won't take them back. So he is launching an international war in terms of uh, pe- people movement. This is this is beyond the yeah. refugee uh, well, I think, movement. I think one thing, though, in context is um, um, what he's proposing is a bit more direct and over it than what Obama was already doing under his presidency um, because under his presidency for the past eight years he probably um, it has been argued by left-wing critics that he's deported more immigrants um, than any president in history. And so I think Donald Trump... Um, is operating on a much more direct xenophobic platform, and so he's aiming to probably do even more than what Obama previously did. See, the 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 funny thing about this is that it's a capitalist who push for immigrants to come in as cheap labour. Majority of the immigrant labourers, whether it's America or here, they are brought in so they can be employed for a lesser wage and not as good working conditions. Mm-hmm. And he's blaming uh, the previous government. And it's, it's this all around what the capitalists do. And he doesn't seem to decipher the difference, the finer points of 
what the immigration is all about. He's just illegal immigrants. Um, I wonder how he's going to find them in the first place, but that's another right. story. Well, I, no. think, I think one of the things in the United States is um, the, le- the whole rhetoric around illegal immigrants is very similar to refugee, you know, to refugees. refugees in Australia. Essentially what the government does, um, what the United States and um, governments have done and also the capitalists have done is basically they actually... Um, capitalists actually love the idea that there's all these illegal immigrants coming in with mm. no citizenship rights, um, um, less work rights, because it means they can exploit them for sheep or labour. It happens here all the time. And based, but what what they do in you know is basically in is they kind of like create this sort of ideology that um, <laughs> our your working conditions Excuse are being me. attacked by illegal immigrants. Yeah. When it's actually no, what's actually happening is it's actually the capitalists who are they're the ones making the sort of... That's right, but the end product is, if you're going to employ local labour, you then have to pay decent wages. Yeah. So that is a burden that the capitalists wouldn't want to, to carry, and that's going to create problems for him, but that's, that's his problem. We'll see what happens. Okay, lastly, uh, or last two things. Suspend immigration from terror-prone regions where vetting cannot save safely occur. In other words, refugees who are fleeing from war-torn areas, wars in which the U.S. has instigated or is an active participant in, people who are running from their refugees will not be accepted, similar to this country. All betting of people coming into our country will be considered extremely extreme betting. So this is going to be draconian law. Next, I will work with Congress to introduce the following broader legislative measures and fight the passage for their passage within the first 100 days of my administration. So this is the wonderful plan this man has to just about kill people in in many ways um, and in many shapes and forms, really. And it's um, uh, um, heartbreaking and and terrorizing. The Green Left Radio and Jacob and Lalita at the helm till 8.30. And moving on, Jacob. I'll just make one kind of last point just about Donald Trump because it yeah, it's it. good to probably tie all this into a particular context. Um, one of the, the main kind of differences between um, the United States and the Australian and this is why Donald Trump represents such a, you know, it's creating such a reaction, is that presidents ultimately have far more power than any prime minister. Um, they have veto power. Yeah, they basically have, you know, they, it's called... They're basically able to make executive decisions. That's right. Uh, um, although there's a limitation to how, what, because, you know, a president could essentially act like a dictator in yep. the United States using these executive powers. But what would happen is that it would create a sort of, there's sort of, um, um, there's systems in place where they could, the president could get impeached. Um, for example, if the rest of the mm. Congress is completely against what the president is doing. Um yeah, but um, the main the main concern is actually if if President Trump does get impeached for any crazy thing to do, he basically means his vice president, his running mate, um, Mike. I forgot his name, but he's not buying bad. <laughs> I don't know what he's. I forgot. I think it's something Pete, but yeah, well, his name is not that important. But he is quite much more dangerous than yes, Donald he is. Trump. He mm. is probably represents the worst of the Christian right. Okay, let's move on. I think I'm sick yep. of Trump. Let's do something else. Um, Unless you got something uh, from the articles, I want to talk about a conference I attended, which is the International Indigenous uh, Conference. Yeah, that'll be in interesting. Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. Um, there were so many speakers. There were people from um, Sweden, 
Sweden-Norway, actually, they, they crossed bo- the border, uh, the Sami people. Uh, we had indigenous peoples from um, Amer- the USA and Canada. And it was, of course, the Aboriginal community uh, here organized it. And the organization that organized this conference was the Lovija Institute um, that is very famous in Australia uh, in relation to doing academic work in relation to Melbourne Uni and all the other um, institutions in Australia. Now, this was held um, from the 8th to the 10th of November, and it was one of the most interesting conferences I went to. It was amazing. It was just, I mean, it is available on the website, so if people want to listen to some of those um, contributions, you can, you can go to Lowija, spelled L-O-W-I-T-J-A, and you'll find some amazing contributions um, in it. So they put out a statement. That's, I think we just focus on the statement. Um, so it gives you a flavor of what was discussed at the conference because it's three days is too much to cover. So they said the conference asserts that indigenous peoples across the world have the right to self-determination, as expressed in the United Nations Declaration on Human on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. The right to self-determination underpins the right to health. The truth about indigenous peoples must be told, heard, and known for justice to ensure. Only then can we achieve genuine reconciliation. The experience of indigenous peoples the world over is a shared experience of colonialism. The conference heard that the primary goal of colonialism was about killing the spirit of indigenous peoples as evidenced through the theft of land, language, and culture. We are all responsible for knowing the historical trauma and the continuing impacts that trauma has on indigenous peoples today. This requires decolonization of everyone's thinking and of attitudes in order to reset the relationships between indigenous peoples and non-indigenous peoples. Indigenous intellect, knowledge, values, practice, and ceremony must be at the forefront of solutions to indigenous issues. We honor our ancestors, resilience, strength, and wisdom. In this moment in time, our obligation is to future generations. As indigenous peoples, we ask ourselves, what kind of ancestor did my own ancestors want me to be? What kind, what kind of ancestors do I want to ancestor do I want to be? What kind of ancestor do I want my children to be? The conference was based on three themes: identity, knowledge, strength. So, I won't go into the the lengthy description of those three, but the, there was a call to action, and this is I, I, I guess is the most crucial part. Um, there are five things they call on the government to do or the governments to do and here we go we call on all governments to fully implement the UN declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples that's point number one number two we call on all nations and their citizens to know the truth in relation to indigenous peoples and to act on that truth three we call on all governments to support the goals that have been identified by indigenous peoples This requires a proper resourcing and long-term commitment to the health and well-being of indigenous peoples. Four, we call on governments to resource, to fund, and to commit to indigenous peoples' institutions at all levels. Indigenous institutions need to lead the way in supporting indigenous peoples to achieve health and well-being. And the last point, 
uh, we call on everyone to ensure that we grow strong indigenous children into strong, healthy adults able to reach the full potential of their lives. And lastly, this is what they state. Furthermore, the conference stands by and with Standing Rock Sioux in its opposition to the Dakota Access Pipelines in the USA. So that was a, a strong statement. In, in, yeah. uh, there's so much politics in there. Statements of how they've suffered through the process of colonization. So that I guess, um, you know... People need to think about this, and I'll encourage people to go to their website, L-O-W-I-T-J-A. So it'll be, you know, it'll be worthwhile doing that. Yeah, okay. it definitely sounded like a um, fantastic um, Oh, it was just amazing. And you, you can't describe it because there are, there are hundreds of contributions. You know, every, every time we had a workshop, there was about seven to choose from. Mm. It was just impossible to choose. And... It was filled with Aboriginal people from all over Australia, extremely strong women. Admir- you, you just stood there and, and you, you had goose pimples because you were so strong, you know, really fighting for their people. And um, the, we had um, a, a chief from, uh, a native Indian chief from uh, Canada. He was amazing. He went up, you know, with this normal conference attire, which is suit and tie and all that. And then he put on his headgear, <laughs> which is just <laughs> wonderful. Everybody just stood up and clapped when he did that. It was fantastic. And he, and the, the, I, I guess um, what I, I really would like to conclude about this conference is that the, the experience of indigenous peoples across the world is absolutely standard. You know, stealing of land, raping of their land, you know, uh, destroying the people, destroying the language, destroying the culture, uh, and therefore losing thousands of years of experience and knowledge that these people hold because of the drive of profit. This is capitalism at its worst. And I don't think it's recognized, and, and even Australia is a nation that was built on the spoils of colonialism. People don't get that. If If Britain hadn't colonized the countries around the world to steal the wealth, they couldn't have established Canada and Australia as settler colonies because they needed money to establish and do that. And later, you know, unleash the, their power to destroy or try to destroy the indigenous peoples of all those colonies they dominated. And these uh, so-called settler colonies did the same, and they didn't leave. So, you know, all these things, it's just... So it was so it was it it brought tears to my eyes some of those contributions because so many of them lost so many family members in in the invasion um, and with respect you know paid to people like um, uh, Archie Roach who played at the conference you know he's a very highly respected um, elder and he's released an album by the way so he's doing a tour as well so all interesting very enjoyable stuff anyway. Right, um, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio on 855 AM on 3CR. Okay, um, we have an interview coming up shortly, um, interview with Wendy Farmer um, to talk about, um, you know, transitions in the Lachaud Rally. Um, many probably would know um, that the Hazelwood um, Power um, Coal Station or Power, it got, had been closed, shut down, um, which, you know, it's considered a win for the environment, but there's a much more complex story in that, you know, it's a win for the environment, but it's also a big loss for workers and 
the fact that there's no transition plan. Yeah, um, we'll talk about words, an interview. And we'll be talking about that in the interview, so let's get a preview of what that um, thing. Um, I guess in terms of news from um, the Green Left Weekly, um, there, is a, there is an article here. Um, it's, a, it's a bit of a interesting... I think we haven't really covered this that much on Green Left Weekly um, or Green Left Radio, I mean, um, because... Um, but it's an interesting kind of like cult, um, what would be called a culture war as sort of pinned by the conservatives. And this is about um, sections 18C and 18D of oh, the Racial Discrimination gosh. Act, <laughs> um, the law, which is a law against racial vilification, um, which has been, as Peter Boyle writes here in the Green Left Weekly, under renewed attacks from the right. Um, these attacks have the backing of, you know, the Murdoch Empire and the um, media empire. Well, not empire. They don't have empire. They have a media empire. Uh, and the support of the federal government, which has announced a parliamentary inquiry to determine whether the law, this law imposes unreasonable limits on free speech and recommended whether the law should be changed. And really, the truth is um, these racial vilification laws have not impended free speech since they were introduced in the um, early 1990s. On the other hand, since then, both coalition and Labor federal and state governments have introduced many other laws that have strongly restricted freedom of speech and assembly. You know, we have, you know, our right to protest has been curbed by... Um, by new laws in most states. Special laws make it offence for workers in Australia's refugee detention camps in Nauru and Manus to speak out about child abuse. Police and ASIO powers have been greatly increased in the name of anti-terrorism. Um, the long and long-held legal rights have been weakened or removed. And the main kind of irony is that you know, you have columnists go like Andrew Bolt go on about how our freedom of speech has been attacked because we're not allowed to racially vilify people. Um, and yet you, these same people will never speak up against some of these sort of attacks on freedom of speech that Peter Moore, um writes. Um, and, of course, you know, the real facts, it's really um, the hype about Section 18C and pending free speech is basically, as Peter Boyle writes here, a racist campaign of lies and needs to be um, totally rejected. The racial vilification laws includes an express protection of free, of free speech in Section 18D. Um, you know, Section 18C does not render, quote here, does not render unlawful anything settled done unreasonably and in good faith, A, in the performance, ex exhibition or dis distribution of artistic work, or B, in the course of any statement, publication, the comment is expression of a genuine belief held by the person making the comment subject to these um, protections. Section 18D makes it unlawful to offend, insult, humiliate or intimidate someone in public because of their race or ethnicity. However, the law also encourages complaints to be dealt with through conciliation through the Human Rights Commission. In any case, only 3% of cases actually get to court. And, of course, the actual number of Section 18C complaints while rising sharply since 2011 to 2012 are a tiny fraction of the actual cases of racial vilification taking place. This is because the targets of systematic racism are often too disempowered, too uninformed of law, or too intimidated to bring complaints. Um, you know, a lot of... And as Peter Boyle writes here again, most of the people making these complaints... Um, are from people who do not belong to groups subject to racism. Um, and and, um, 
and um, 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 the, um, the much-publicised Pryor versus Q&T case in which Cindy Pryor was alleged free white um, white students posted offensive comments on social media after they were turned away from an Aboriginal-only computer lab was not a re- um, was not a really you know was not a reckless case, but rather one dismissed by the court because it did not have reasonable prospects of a successful prosecution, um, as in the 2011 case of um, Eckrock versus um, Bold. Prior Aboriginal university worker was clearly the target of racist behaviour, but both. Um, these cases, you know, actual cases showed how hard it would be for racial vilification cases to seed under law. Um, you know, the vilification law arose in the wake of independent public inquiries in the 1980s that demonstrated clearly how racist vilification had grave physical consequences for the targets of racism. Since then, we have seen many cases of the open excitement incitement of racial violence by people in positions of power, including the incitement of the notorious um, Nola race rights by radio shock jocks. Um, Human Rights Commission President Gilligan has said she would support the replacement of the words offend and insult in the Section 18C with the word vilify. Um, she said this would make it be less ambiguous and would strengthen the law. This position should not be supported without further legal investigation. In the meantime, um, Peter Boyle concludes that, you know, Progressive and democratic-minded people should reject the false free speech campaign against the racial vilification laws and recognise that the real danger we're confronting today is the rise of racism and bigotry. Um, you know, and the abolition of weakening of Section 18C will further legitimise and encourage racism. Good morning. Hi, so I'll just introduce Wendy um, quickly. Um, Wendy Farmer is from um, the, from Voices of the Valley, and Wendy has become the face of the community campaign for a just transition for the Lachaud Rally. Um, and of course, um, when um, so Wendy has probably a lot to sort of comment about in terms of the recent closure of um, the Hazelwood Power Station. So, good morning, Wendy. Good morning. How are you? Good. Uh, so, I guess. Um, what, what can, um, can what, I guess we can sort of start off, you know, kind of like, you know, your state, um, your um, perspective and opinions on, you know, the closure of Hayeswood and work from there and maybe talk about, you know, just transition and what, um, what it could mean for the rally. Yes, so look, my personal thoughts and I think the thoughts of the community is we thought we had more time with Hayeswood and we would have, we would have expected a gradual shutdown rather than a shutdown within five months. Um, we're really disappointed in the governments, both state and federal government, in the sense that we believe they knew about May that the shutdown was going to happen. Um, and it would have given us, you know, that little bit more time. Five months for a transition isn't really long enough. And for a just transition just definitely isn't long enough. So we believe that a, a tra- what is a transition, you know, and what is a just transition? Transition isn't just about those workers in the, the actual um, power stations or mines. Transition is more about community, community and how community engage with what is happening. Um, it's not just about the economy. Often we, you know, think of moving from one thing to another, so in our case maybe um, coal-fired power to renewable energies, but it's more than just moving from one thing to another. It's how the community is taken along that journey with them. And we really, we believe for a just transition, that community must be involved in what happens. 
uh, Wendy, what is actually happening now in relation to this transition? Maybe that will help clarify what you're uh, saying. Okay, so um, we have had several promises um, from both state and federal governments now. So we have been given um, in... A few months ago, we were given $43 million to help with the transition plan for Latrobe Valley, which was granted out of the Hazelwood Mine Fire Inquiry. Um, Last or two weeks ago, when the announcement on the Thursday was made of Hazelwood closing down, $266 million was given to the the area, so the Latrobe City, um, Balboa and Wellington. We really believe with a just transition, that money has to be central to where um, the, the, it hurts most, and that's the Latrobe Valley. With a you know a unemployment rate of close to 19% in some of those areas, we can't allow it to, to go any higher. Um, so we, we believe that that money really has to be focused on the Latrobe Valley area. If you have a cup and put water into a cup, it flows into the saucer. You don't feed the, um, you don't put the water in the saucer and it flows into the cup because it doesn't work. And we believe that's how the economy would be involved in that. But as much as that, this community has a lot of answers on, on what can happen with Latrobe Valley. We, we can continue to look at, um, this as a fear and it's going to kill Latrobe Valley and it's not going to be any good. We were hurt very much in privatisation in the 90s. 90s when all the um, power stations were privatised, or, or the community can now turn around and say, okay, it's going to happen. What is the opportunities before us? Oh, yeah. um, I guess um, my question is um, sort of like, you know, what what is kind of like your what is the ideal transition for the rally? You know, um, in terms of like, you know, um, what what do you, what is the sort of overall plan that you're campaigning for? Well, for Voices of the Valley, we've actually come come up with a plan of a transition centre, um, right from how it supports the workers or social and worker support, because there's a lot of social aspects to this as well, the education um, facilities that are needed, the um, incubators and manufacturers. I was at a um, regional development meeting last night, um, and Daniel Andrews was there actually and you know we were given the opportunity to discuss a lot of things and what was needed we need community ownership we we need to move away from these international companies that own everything around us including our infrastructure and you know our energy um, and have some community ownership and some community pride in that we believe that Latrobe Valley could um, do mass manufacture of solar panels and batteries and you know, but also different things. We are working on that energy sector, but Latrobe Valley needs many different things. It needs so many different ideas to to move forward. It's not going to be one thing that changes, and we're not going to have a white knight ride into town and say, here it all is. So we need to be part of this. Um, Latrobe Valley should be doing um, research into what is the future of electricity in that condition in the storage and the harvesting of electricity electricity and we would like to be eventually our own retailer where the money is going back into our community Mm. and what was um daniel andrews uh, answer to all those suggestions he actually moved around the table last night and he was there for the whole night which was quite impressive um and he he really just listened to communities he or to the community and it was a whole gippsland area that was in this meeting last night but he just took a listen and to the ideas and was quite impressed on what was coming up. 
in the room. And I think that was, it was good to see the um, different people in that room and the people that have never really talked with each other so much. And as I said, this, this region does have some brilliant people. It's got some great ideas. And I believe we can look at this as an opportunity rather than fear. Hmm. The other key question in this whole um, scenario is how the mine was sold to an international company for a pittance. And the cleanup process, we haven't heard much about. I wonder if you know anything about what's happening with the cleanup process. Well, there hasn't been a lot said about it. Through the Hazelwood Mine Fire Inquiry, which was held um, last year, there, one of the sections of it was the rehabilitation of mines, and it, was, it spoke about all the mines. Um, and the only option that they could come up with was the flooding or the pit lake of the um, Hazelwood Mine, or actually, in fact, all of the mines in Latrobe Valley. That was the best option they could come up with, but it wasn't really a good option. And they, they commented in that Hazelwood Mine Fire Inquiry report that it wasn't the best option but they really didn't know saying that you know that Hazelwood sits on the side of a freeway which has collapsed before because of movement in the mine we you know and where are they going to get the water to fill this mine if they divert the rivers into that mine Mm. it could take seven years Mm. but it would actually stop all water downstream from that mine to the farmers and everything else so the questions are still there. What will they do and how will they make sure that it's safe for this community? Mm. So in that um, consultation you had with Daniel Andrews and other, I guess, government officials who may have been there, was the clean-up discussed at all? I don't believe so, not in this particular um, forum. It was more about what what could happen in um, Gippsland rather than what, as in um, industries and what, what the communities needed more rather than I don't believe that the mine side itself was discussed in any of the sessions and I, I may be wrong because we split into different tables and discussed different things but it wasn't one of the main points at the end. Mm. It's to, to us and to the community it's very serious and what does happen we can't afford to let it be run down and as I said the freeway runs right beside it. We've got homes within 200 metres of that mine and we cannot afford a another mine fire like we had in 2014. So we have to make sure that, as I said, it is safe for the community. From my thinking, um, it's usually the people who work there who have the knowledge of the inner workings of any one of these um, institutions, industries or whatever. So I'm assuming the workers who have worked there for decades um, would have a better idea of how to clean up the mine than most of the bureaucrats who walk in or the rich who buy lock, stock and barrel for profit purposes. Um, so that is something um, I guess uh, we, we, all, we all think about. But I'm just wondering how many of the workers or um, the people who become unemployed from the mine um, would like to do something like that? Would you have any idea? Well, I do have some idea. It was actually, I discussed that with somebody yesterday and Anji have said that they will um, rehabilitate the mine. I'm not sure what their complete ideas are. We have seen ideas over the years yeah. and whether, as I said, that was Pit Lake and whether it would work. Um, there is, the workers at the moment are being asked if they are interested in a job after the 31st of March mm. um, and I, I would guess that most of those would be for rehabilitation of the mine. Mm. They will be um, putting their names into the bucket if they want a job and then they'll be chosen out of that out of that group that have said yes. 
there will be some probably that will just retire, but there will be that percentage that will put their hand up and say, yes, I'm interested, and then they'll be picked out. Okay. We're running a bit um, low on t- we're running low on time now, so do you have any kind of like concluding thoughts and also can you tell us about sort of anything um, like we've left a, out really. um, like that we've left out or something how we can support this or how we can keep up with the developments um, in um, rally? Well, I think, you know, with Latrobe Valley having all the um, power stations that it does and supplying Victoria's um, energy for the last 90 years, Latrobe Valley has made Melbourne what it is. So if you look mm-hmm. around and see all those bright lights, we have made it. We now need the support of the um, people in Melbourne rather than work against us. They need to work with us and they need to make sure that the community does have a just transition. Good call. And um, how can they do that? You know, it's, it's a, I know the, the uh, Greens have been running a big campaign on this as well, um, be it political. How do you envisage that people can help you guys? Should, if, if you have rallies, you know, would you advertise it for people to come down? Whatever. I mean, what are your strategies to invite Look, the people down? There's skills that we um, need for the transition centre, even though we do want it centralised in the Show Valley, um, and and this, you know, but skills that can be shared, but also um, you know, putting pressure on um, politicians and especially the federal because we haven't really heard a lot from them. Um, as I said, we need to make sure this is not a time to celebrate. Nobody closed these, this power station down. It wasn't the Greens. It wasn't any other group. It was a decision by work or by the company because WorkSafe had um, pin notices on the units yep. and it's not safe to operate. And I think we need to make that clear that it wasn't any group that closed this um, power station down, but we need to support those workers and we need to support the community. So how do we access uh, that sort of um, support for the workers? Yes, pl- uh, you know, placing uh, pressures on politicians is one thing. Are there any other activities you organise in the Latrobe Valley to which people should come down in droves, maybe even catch buses to come down and support you? We've actually um, run in a couple of forums at the moment about our transition centres. What I would lo- really like to say is... Um, go on to our website, which is www.botv.org.au. Get involved that way. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Thank you, Wendy. And, and, you know, it's very kind of you to be awake at this time of the morning for the interview. That's right. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Okay, so um, we got, we're on to the activist calendar now. If you're listening to, um, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, and this is Green Left Weekly with Jacob Malarita Chalaya at the helm. And we are up to announcements. Sorry, Jacob. Um, I'll make the first one since this, um, this announcement's not on your sheet. Yeah, okay. Um, there's going to be uh, a snap action in Melbourne tomorrow. Um, it's organised it's organised quite loosely, um, but um, all we know is that these people are closely affiliated with RISE. Um, there's going to be an... Act- RISE as in the refugee group. Yep. Yep. Um, so there's going to be an action called Block the Bill Snap Action in oh, Melbourne. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be at 1pm at Federation Square. Um, and um, following on for that, um, Lali, um, we'll, um, there's, um, there's going to be a protest um, also at Federation Square at 2 p.m. Yeah, just before you go on to the, the other rally, um, the, the rally that Rise is organising is in support. It is an organisation run by refugees. Only refugees can be part of the organisation. They're organising this. 
in relation to blocking the bill? Oh, no, no, they aren't. They're, they're not, RISE hasn't organised this. It's just people who are close to RISE. Okay. So but a the, lot of the speakers are reflective the, of that. When you say block the bill, it's that bill about uh, totally banning refugees from ever returning to Australia who, that who have come by boat. And the ones who are uh, supposedly illegal immigrants in um, Nauru and uh, Manus, yes? Yep. Yep. Okay, cool. I just want to be clear. All right. So, okay. So, that's the first um, rally. The second rally is Bursay 5. And people who are familiar with, with politics in Malaysia will know that Bursay is, Bursay means clean. Uh, it's like an almost anti-corruption um, campaign. It's been running for many years now. It's been through its... Um, Ups and downs, and now they're having a, a large uh, mobilization across the nation in Malaysia and in support across the world, really. It's at 2 p.m. at Fed Square, straight after that um, rally against the bill. Uh, Fed Square at um, 2 p.m., people know where Fed Square is, you know, right next to Flint Station. Um, now there's um, to support our radio station. Yes. <laughs> oh, our radio program. We will be doing um, we'll be doing a fundraiser for Green Left Radio um, on Saturday night. This Saturday there will be a trivia night. Um, we're um, taking place in Footscray at the Metro West, which is at 138 Nicholson Street. Um, the doors will open at 6 p.m. with the trivia starting at 7. So yeah, if you want to get, um, get down there, have a bit of fun. You know, um, there'll be food, drinks, and there's some prizes to be won as well. Yeah, please um, do support this event because this is what keeps the radio running and funds uh, donations uh, that I made will be um, to support this particular program and support 3C as a whole. And as I said before, we haven't reached our target yet for this year and we are so um, asking listeners to support the radio. Next one. Faulkner Community Forum. On the 20th of November, the Faulkner Community House um, is holding a forum uh, organized by the new councillor, Sir Bolton. And if you want more information, it's 0417-583-664. And the Faulkner Community House is on 95 to 97 Major Road, Faulkner. All right, um, and there will on, as mentioned earlier in the program before, they'll on that same Sunday, probably the same time as that previous announcement, so you're going to have to make a choice between which ones to go to. Organisers of, um, there will be, there'll be a counter rally against Melbourne against Trump, basically a group of, you know, right wing nationalists, far right, whatever you want to call them, have organised a pro-Trump rally in support of Donald Trump winning president. And so Campaign Against Racism and Fascism have have organised a counter-rally in response. That will be happening at 1pm at the Parliament of Victoria. Okay. Now, we need to run through this quickly because we've got to play the 40-day celebration one. Okay. The last couple of announcements. One is war. The Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance are holding a fundraiser. Last Chance Rock and Roll Bar, 232 Victoria Street, City. So that's Last Chance Rock and Roll Bar, 232 Victoria City. And this last one is in relation to Timor Leste. The film being screened. Um, it's in relation to the the deal on the on the um, maritime boundaries and the benefits of. Um, the oil rich reserves in the seas is organized by Timor Sea Justice Campaign and it's at the Sun Theatre, 8 
Ballarat Street, Yarraville. So the name of the movie is Time to Draw the Line. So the Sun Theatre, 8 Ballarat Street, Yarraville, on the 20th of November. It doesn't say what time. So I guess you could ring the um, theatre to find out. So let's move on to the um, 40-day celebrations of 40 years of the existence of 3CR. So we've got two of those. One is with Margaret Bindich. She's talking about um, cutbacks to TAFE um, and... This is during the Bailey government's uh, term and how they wanted to privatise the uh, uh, TAFE courses. That's one. The other one is by Lisa Fitzpatrick, who was the Secretary of the um, Australian Nurses and Midwives Federation. Again, that's in relation to cutbacks in health um, and, and, of course, nurses' wages and, and conditions and so on. Um, again, against the Bailey government. So, shall we play them? Yep. And, and, um, and we have to you. say, yeah, thank, thank you, you for listeners, listening. Listeners, because I don't think we have any time after these. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, thanks a lot. Thank you. The Bailey State Government in Victoria is making or threatening to make cuts to many public services. And the TAFE sector is the latest to experience huge budget cuts and pressure to marketise and to compete with private training providers. In 2009, under state Labor government, TAFE fees were already increased up to threefold in some cases and new rules introduced saying that students who already had a diploma or a degree would be charged the full cost of their TAFE courses. Um, That can be up to $20,000, a course and utterly unaffordable for many people. These same reforms years ago made a much greater number of private education and training institutions eligible for government subsidies for training places. The Australian Education Union argues that these for-profit private institutions have driven down standards, favoured cheap, popular and easy-to-teach courses like personal training and hospitality and have left more expensive equipment-intensive courses like engineering to the publicly-owned TAFEs. But now, on top of these past reforms, the Bailiu Liberal government in Victoria has recently announced a $40 million cut in funding for TAFEs and is considering plans to cut another $230 million. The Australian Education Union has reported that 300 TAFE teachers lost their jobs already over the summer because of cuts and more staff and courses are under threat. And to talk more about the campaign against TAFE funding cuts and the privatisation of education and training, we're joined by Margarita Windage, who's a TAFE teacher at Victoria University and a member of the Australian Education Union. Margarita, thanks for joining us. Not a problem. Now, I know that the privatisation issue can't be separated from the question of funding. Um, Would you say it's right to say that the government is trying to force TAFEs to marketise to make up for the loss of government funding through charging higher fees and cutting expensive courses? Look, I think you're absolutely right. Um, On the one hand, the way to really privatise is that you... Uh, start introducing fees for students and that's one way to also undermine the fundamental right of uh, a person to have access to education. So that starts to introduce a kind of market profit motive into this. There has been quite a consistent push for the last few years now in Victoria to privatise the public education sector and the vocational education sector which is really the sort of TAFE courses and diploma courses and certificate courses. The way this happened was 
um, through the Labour Party already, through the skills reform. It was the previous Brumby government that actually pushed um, that sort of market agenda onto the public tapes. And the way they did that was actually started to shift some funding out of the public purse and support private providers to start delivering courses. What that meant was that the TAFEs now had to start competing, in a way, for students with private TAFEs. Now, this has already had quite a big impact in the last few years, apart from um, students having to pay uh, more money for their courses. It was the Labour Party that actually introduced fees, and these fees then started to uh, uh, increase year by year. The, the final push now, really, I think, or the biggest push we can say has been this massive cut of around $300 million over four years for the 18 TAFE institutions in Victoria. This is the biggest cut to the public TAFE system, I think, ever that we can remember. Um, the impact will be severe. Uh, and that is really the point. That is the whole point of the exercise of the Liberal Bailey government. Um, so the consequences, what we're talking about here is that by taking out $300 million over four years from the TAFEs, it will make it so difficult for some TAFEs to continue providing courses that they basically can't. Um, they will have to cut some courses that they don't consider viable anymore um, because the government funding has dropped so considerably that the students who do still want to do some of these courses will have no choice but to actually access private providers. And other TAFE teachers have talked about the numbers in their classes and the number of students putting pressure on their resources increasing significantly in recent years. Has that been your experience? Oh, absolutely. Because like I said, we've already, I mean, we've already had, the, the pressure was really put on the TAFE sector by the previous Labor government. But then with the, um, the, the, the Liberal National Coalition government, they then started to basically um, cut, you know, cut, cut TAFE funding. Like last year, I think there was like 30 or $40 million cut. The year before, I think something quite similar. And the justification was that there's been a, a shortfall, or I guess a budget deficit for TAFE funding. And so uh, the government basically can't afford to provide the same level of public funding to the public TAFE. What they didn't say is that the reason there was a shortfall or a deficit in the budget for public education in the VET sector was because public money had been siphoned off into the pockets of private providers. Right. And on that question, can you give us some examples of how the government's support for private training providers has undermined publicly provided TAFE programs? Oh, look, I think there's probably quite a lot of different examples. So some of the key examples you could say is that um, um, quite a lot of students might actually choose a private provider over a TAFE because a private, most private providers don't have the same level of overheads because um, their employment standards are different. Uh, a lot of private providers only employ people, uh, staff on a casual basis. They generally don't have libraries. They often don't run courses where they need a certain level of equipment that is necessary. So their overheads are very small. That means they can actually make more money um, from the, the, the government funding that they get. Um, and 
we know the consequences of um, students switching over to private uh, providers. Um, we have seen, you know, a lot of students finishing uh, diplomas or certificates um, with a real lack of skills in that particular certificate. There are course providers who might run a diploma course that would um, maybe run for about a year at a TAFE. They might run them in four weeks or six weeks' time. They might run a certificate course that in a public TAFE would take two, three months to complete on a weekend. Mm. So you can imagine what that means with regards to the skill level that um, the people who complete these courses come out with. Right. And now, I know that in universities this is a slightly different issue because universal, universities are federally funded and they um, serve quite a different base of students. But are universities being defunded and privatised too? Do we see some of these same issues in that sector? Sure. I think we've seen this whole sort of neoliberal um, ideology has crept into the education sector for quite some time. I mean, if it wasn't for the horrendous fees that international students are paying to study in Australia, I think um, a lot of a lot of students, um, you know, citizens in Australia or permanent residents wouldn't even be able to to study because the funding had been consistently, um, if not reduced, it hadn't kept up with um, enrolments and stuff. So it's the 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 the, the whole public education sector is terribly underfunded and that includes universities mm. and we see that with um, you know a lot of different private universities starting to enrol more students and we also see in the TAFE sector like I mentioned in the introduction the government trying to generate more fee income from students with this new rule that if you already have a diploma or a degree then you have to pay full price for any subsequent qualification how has that impacted on TAFE students or any students for that matter? Well, it's had quite a big impact on, like on the one hand, for instance, some courses might have actually lost some students who, um, you know, might have had a degree in a particular um, qualification but would like to reskill and then, you know, change their mind because they're not prepared to pay $16,000 for a two-year diploma course. So what it actually means is that on the one hand, we have, you know, it creates this complete contradiction. On the one hand, we have this constant public discourse from government that we are, have a skill shortage. You know, we need people to prepare to rethink. And more and more employers are actually looking for staff that are multi-skilled. Mm. At the same time, the government is making it harder and harder for ordinary working class people to reskill. Yeah, that's right. So it's, it's really, it's really, it's not hitting the wealthy people. It's not. It's really only hitting working class people hard. And really quite unreasonable to penalise someone who hypothetically might have done a cert for many years ago, even in some cases a cert for that was encouraged by their employer as part of their work arrangements. They've done that years ago. They want to reskill in another area, but are being charged fees of over ten thousand dollars to do that course. Well, it's really. I call it highly discriminatory, but also. At, at the end, the whole country will actually suffer by taking away the majority of people's ability to really, you know, improve on their skills and become multi-skills mm. and, and contribute to the best of their ability. And in an, a society where you're expected to change jobs so frequently and where work is so insecure, having that capacity to re-skill and keep yourself 
employable, quote-unquote, is absolutely necessary. But I'm, I'm conscious that we're running out of time. The last question I wanted to ask was an acknowledgement of the fact that this is also an industrial issue for TAFE teachers and staff at TAFE, as well as an issue for students. I wanted to ask how well unionised is the TAFE sector and what is the, the union's response to the cut in funding? Look, I mean, the, the union has come out quite strongly and quickly, um, really condemning the cuts and calling it for what they are, which is an attack on public education and privatisation by stealth of shifting taxpayers' money into the pockets of private operators and, and providers. I think that's been absolutely correct. We've had one large protest in the city and more regional actions are being called as we speak. There'll also be another action in Melbourne called by the Australian Education Union on June 20 at the Melbourne Town Hall. And students are also organising and discussing what's happening. So the students are also uh, organising a meeting. And in terms of us teachers, like, you know, it's a bit of a mix in terms of, um, in terms of coverage of tapes. Uh, at Victoria University, there's quite a lot of people who are, um, you know, who are uh, in the union. But at the same time, I would say to some people, you know, in the sector are also a bit tired because they had to fight so hard consistently. Like, you know, it in, in, doesn't matter if it was a state government, a state Labor government or, or, or Liberal coalition government, but work very, very hard to improve their conditions. So some, some of the people are a little bit, you know, worn out. Life's difficult. Uh, workloads are very high. But everybody's extremely upset and a lot of people have come up to support the campaign. And what I'd like to make, I'd actually like to do a little bit of a plea more generally to the entire community to come out and really support the teachers and students against these cuts because um, this will impact very strongly. It impacts on every family's ability to send their kids to give them a good education. It also impacts on generally the public because of the, the general low quality of education from private providers. We're going to have a bigger bunch of unskilled or underskilled people out there who supposedly deserve the public. The public has a right to have skilled professionals, you know, attending to them in whatever profession. And that is also being undermined. Mm. Um, this is also a plea to different welfare agencies, other, you know, um, 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 I would say even, you know, some businesses think twice about what this means because um, we already know that some, some workplaces will not employ students who've done a qualification with a private provider because they know the standards are low. So, you know, if including businesses, but welfare agencies, all of them, if they really want to have qualified staff, skilled staff, they better oppose these cuts and help mobilise together with the students and the mm. teachers. Yeah, Margarita Windich, a TAFE teacher at Victoria University and member of the Australian Education Union, thanks so much for updating us about the fight against these cuts to the funding of TAFEs and also the government's push to privatise the education and training sector. Thank you for having me on your program. You're welcome. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.
Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, good morning, everybody. If I can just say a few words, and I first of all want to say thanks very much to the Alfred nurses for coming out. Um, absolutely wonderful support. We do have an, an idea about how difficult it is for you here uh, to show your support for the campaign. But your courage, like the courage of thousands of other nurses around the state, today we have got 15 uh, hospitals impacted on, 15 hospitals where nurses are walking out for up to four hours this morning, up to four hours this afternoon, and of course ensuring that we've got safe levels of care on our wards to make sure that our patients aren't terribly impacted. But we do know that this is what Mr Bailey wants to see happen in the long term. And so our short-term action is just, and it is a just cause to fight to protect the Victorian community when they come into our public hospitals into the future. Mr Davis has seemed very concerned in relation to the cancellation of some elective surgery. The Federation and all the nurses, particularly theatre nurses, wish that Mr Davis was as worried about those 9,500 Victorians who will miss out on elective surgery this financial year as a result of his budget cuts, nothing to do with nurses' action. You have, I think, a copy of EBA Update 45. It's a critical EBA update, even though it's a little bit old now. But importantly, that Enterprise Agreement Update details for you uh, and provides you with a copy of the government's proposal to undermine totally and abolish our nurse-patient ratios. Yet at the same time, the government say they only want a little bit of flexibility and they do not want to abolish ratios. When you look at that document, you'll see that 1.6 of that document says that they only have to implement nurse-patient ratios if they have the capacity to fund those nurse-patient ratios. And given that the hospitals in this state, as a result of this government, are strapped for cash and experiencing harsh budget cuts, we do know that the first thing that will go in the event that we don't protect our enterprise agreement and our nurse-patient ratios will be those very ratios that protect the community and ensure that when they come into a hospital, they are cared for by qualified registered nurses, enrolled nurses and midwives who've got three years training and not three months. One point seven in that document talks about how you will be moved from ward to ward during the shift to plug the holes rather than get on additional staff to cover, uh, for example, sick leave. Once again, when you leave your ward to go to other wards to fill those holes, your ward no longer has nurse-patient ratios and the staff that you leave behind have to take on board and care for the patients that you were allocated at the start of the shift. Once again, no ratios in that instance, and the government is lying when it says that it doesn't want to abolish our nurse-patient ratios. The most insulting part of the agreement of that clause says that what they want to do is include health assistance in our nurse-patient ratios. We've got nurse-patient ratios and midwife-patient ratios. We don't have nurse-health-assistant-patient ratios, and they aren't nurse-patient ratios when half of the staff 
included in those ratios are health assistants with three months of training. Health assistants don't want that horrible responsibility of being responsible for delivering the care directly to patients and nurses don't want to have to take the responsibility of not only overseeing the patients that they've got themselves, but also the patients that a health assistant will have also, as well as the standard of care of that health assistant. So it's absolutely critical that for the Victorian community, we win this dispute. And we do all we ask is for the government to come to the negotiating table accept the proposal from Bill Shorten and let the independent umpire resolve the issues between us. And every time the media ask me about our action, our response has to be, why is it that this government does not want to fix the dispute, rather take nurses to tribunals, to courts, to try and stop them protecting the patients? The question today, and until Mr Bailiw agrees to resolve these issues with the independent umpire overseeing those proceedings, is why don't you want to fix it, Mr Bailiw, with responsibility and with power as the Premier comes the responsibility that you owe to the Victorian community. We will be continuing our action. We will let people know the outcome of the Federal Court today, but our action is important. Our dispute will be resolved when we negotiate an outcome. The lawyers won't fix it. The lawyers will continue to spend more taxpayers' money, and it is critical. $1.4 million already up until December, charging the state government paid by the Victorian taxpayers. That amount of money could have paid for 30 new graduate nurses to have jobs and that would have assisted getting jobs for all of those hundreds of grads who have missed out on graduate years as a result of many hospitals having to cut their programs because there isn't enough funding. We want the Bailiw government to grow the health system with us, grow the workforce with us, protect the patients with us not the courts, not the tribunals. All they need to do is agree, agree to a fix before Senior Deputy President at Fair Work Australia and the action stops. And we put that offer again and again and again. And we want the government to see sense, to think long term about what's best for the community and to make sure that there is a resolution to the dispute. Don't exacerbate it. Don't drive the gap further, fix the dispute, resolve the dispute and allow the independent umpire to do that. Thank you very much. The Victorian community knows how committed you are to them. They understand that it's not about money, it's not about a pay dispute, but it is about ongoing funding to protect our patients into the future. So make sure that you make the effort to come out and join your colleagues around the state. Up to four hours so that there isn't extensive docking and remember the Hardship Fund is there to support you. The community, other nurses and other unions are donating significant amounts of money in the event that you do get docked your pay. And I would like to say uh, to you 
the, the Electrical Trades Union last week donated $10,000 to the fund. We do have doctors, members of the community and other nurses making very significant donations to help you in the